Hi, I'm James Atkinson and welcome to the conversation I recorded with Garrett Oliver earlier this month. Garrett Oliver is brewmaster at Brooklyn Brewery, editor-in-chief of the Oxford Companion to Beer and author of The Brewmaster's Table, the pioneering book on beer and food matching that was published back in 2003. While in New York City, I caught up with Garrett to ask him, among other things, how the landscape has changed for beer at the dining table in the intervening years. I hope you enjoy the chat. Garrett Oliver, thanks very much for joining us on Radio Brews News. Uh, good to be here. You wrote the Brewmaster's Table in 2003, so that's going back 14 years now. And in that book, um, you made the case for beer to be taken more seriously at the dining table. What's happened in 14 years? Has that happened? It has happened, though not quite in the way that I might have expected. Um, you know, I was making an argument that beer could basically be a replacement for wine at the table. Uh, and I think that it can be. However, the way I look at it is that when it comes to, say, dinner, you're going to have one of probably three things. If you're an American, you're going to have a, you're going to have beer, you're going to have wine, or you're going to have a soft drink. There is a possibility you're going to have a whiskey with dinner, or you're going to have a cocktail, uh, especially things like a margarita, like might fit into uh you know into your food plans but as far as i'm concerned or sake but basically it's me one of those three things what i want as a brewer is i would like to have my share of uh uh you know of that you know of that dinner that everybody's having every day smart restaurateurs are learning how to fit beer in uh as part of their model for a restaurant, uh, even when, as it often is in the United States, the wine is the tentpole, if you like, of the restaurant's finances. You know, markups at you know in uh, restaurants in the United States are huge. I mean, especially in a place like New York, easily three hundred percent. You know, and 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 often quite a bit higher. So when you go in and you buy a bottle of wine for say seventy dollars. They paid fifteen dollars maybe for that, uh, and therefore that massive profit is is their standard. Uh, same thing with well drinks. You know, you go and get a cocktail. There's nothing in it but a shot, maybe, and a little bit of sugar and perhaps some fruit juice. So th- it costs them like two dollars to make the cocktail, and they're going to charge you eighteen dollars. They like th- they like that too. On craft beer, they'll come in and say, well, you know, I paid X number of dollars for this, and when I sell a drink, I'm only getting $5, you know, or something like that. I don't sell beer for a living, but I do end up talking to beverage managers, and they say, well, what do you think I should carry? I don't even talk to them often about the mains, because if I go to them and say, hey, you could replace that, you know, that bottle of Cabernet with this here beer... I know they're going to, the first thing they're going to think is this guy's trying to kill me. This guy wants to kill my business. Like, I, I need that $50, $60, you know, from that bottle of wine. I, and I know that. So I'm going to talk to them about the appetizers and the dessert and the cheese plate where the beer can really shine. It can give the server uh, and the customer something to talk about 
and really kind of, you know, build a bit of a relationship there and do some really cool things. And, you know, the person can have their wine and they can have their beer and they walk out and they're happier. And so is the restaurant. Like, that's awesome. That's how a smart restaurant uh, will use beer if they're not a place that is more beer focused. But a lot of uh, restaurants, for some reason, uh, they can't get their minds around it. They often have some people there who work there that are really enthusiastic and they have enthusiastic customers. But they're like, you know what? I've done fine all along. I don't really know anything about this. So I'm not going to put my feet in it because I can make a fool of myself. Cicerone program, I think, has helped people, you know, walk, you know, go in there and do that with a bit more confidence. And Brewmaster's Table has helped, which is awesome. Um, are there any stylistic trends uh, that you're seeing at the moment that um, really lend themselves to, to food pairing? Well, I think that now that we've uh, started uh, to uh, re-embrace acidity, you know, that was one of the last areas where wine usually had some advantage um, where, I mean, obviously we always had, you know, Lambiques and, you know, when you could find them, I guess you could, I mean, 10 years ago, you couldn't even find a real Berliner Weiss. I mean, yeah, you had the Schulteises of the world, but those were long, you know, battlerized. So when you're really talking about uh, a whole new wing uh, of beers that have notable acidity, that is really, and, you know, a, a, a brand new, you know, area for us to explore now that it's greatly available. Yes, it's explored in an older book like Brewmaster's Table, but if I were to totally write Brewmaster's Table from the beginning right now, there would be a lot more about acidity um, just because there are so many more things to choose from. Interestingly, though IPA is the darling of the world uh, in craft beer, there really wouldn't be anything new to say about IPA and food pairing. You know, a lot of people will bring these beers out and they think they're different. They're not different. I mean, I was making those beers 25 years ago. It's like, you're not new. It's not different. Like, you just showed up, but, you know, <laughs> there's nothing new. It's like, okay, so now you can't see through yours. You know, it's like, uh, that That really is not, like, uh, uh, an interesting thing or an innovation. You know, it's... Uh, you know, it's whatever you want. I knew we'd end up talking about juicy IPAs uh, one way or another. So juicy. Well, it's funny, though. The brewers themselves, if you talk to them, are often bored. Even the guys who have a line down the block every Friday or whenever their timing is, and here's our latest can release, they're actually more excited about the can and the design of the can than the beer. It's the same damn beer. It's the same beer it was last week, last month, the guy next door, the new collab, everything is like all one thing. And I've sometimes sat down and tasted five, six, seven of these, you know, top flight, geek trade, fresh off the canning line beers, and tell them apart is almost impossible. Some of them taste good. I mean, some of them taste better than others. Uh, but I'm just, you know, I'm not, I'm not really, you know, been there, done that. They're, you know, it's, 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 it's really the same stuff. I mean, the things that are, that are more exciting to me definitely have to do with, uh, you know, with funk and acid. 
I mean, I've always loved hops, and I've been brewing IPA professionally since 1989. Uh, it's not really any different now than it was then. And specifically within the very broad genre of funk and acid, what are the specific um, styles that, that are coming out of the States um, at the moment or, or your favorite breweries that you're, that you're really enjoying? Well, I think that the, uh, you know, the trend in the direction of the use of, uh, of kettle souring or hot side souring wherever you happen to do it is a, uh, you know, is a big change. That's something that I don't recall having been around really as a thing. It's not like we couldn't have done it, but frankly, I don't remember anybody talking about or thinking about making a souring wort in the kettle. And I'm sure somebody did. Uh, wasn't me. <laughs> and I didn't know anybody who did. So uh, that's really kind of a cool thing. And again, it is one of these things, again, where some people might hate on the, uh, the kettle sour. As far as I'm concerned, they can go take a flying leap. I mean, uh, the value in something is, I mean, it's a completely honest process, and it tastes the way it tastes. Is a kettle sour generally less complex than something really well made, which had a longer souring process? Yes, sometimes. Just the same way that a, you know, an unpasteurized cheese may have more potential to be brilliant than a pasteurized cheese. Only a lot of my favorite cheeses in the world are pasteurized cheeses. So they really, you know, it, it doesn't really quite hold up. Um, you know, we have made sour beers that are soured over a year and a half, and we've made sour beers that are soured over 36 hours. And I don't see a difference really between them. What's interesting to me is how we've taken that culture from Belgium and to a smaller extent from Germany and put it through an American lens to create an American idea of a sour beer, which is then traveling around the rest of the world. Less directly, I think, out of Belgium than through the American prism. Um, and I see that branch happening in places as far away and as separate as Brazil and Japan and China, where you'll go to a place like Young Master and you'll you know in Hong Kong, and you'll see people doing work that's based more on what's going on in the U.S. So we did the first derivation, and then other people will do a derivation from us, and then later. Maybe later we'll go back around and, you know, we'll be brewing Brazilian-style beers, you know, when we can get our hands on the right ingredients sometimes. So are we talking then um, in relation to American sours about kettle sours or American wild ales, or are there also spontaneous um, fermentation beers that are uniquely American? I see them happening all at the same time. I mean, there are not that many... Truly, uh, I mean, people talk about a cool ship movement. In reality, there's maybe 15 or 20 guys that really have, you know, there are a lot of people who plan to get one, but people who are putting out beer on some regular basis, I'm not talking about uh, a house culture where you've got a fooder or something and you have a blend of probably laboratory yeast and wild yeast. 
Are we going to see um, at some stage soon a, a possible new edition of the Brewmasters table with uh, some more time and focus spent on acidity? Uh, I kind of doubt it. I have a tendency not to want to look back, you know, at things. I'm kind of, you know, shark-like and moving forward uh, through the water. A new edition could be seen to be moving forward, though? It could be, but at the same time, I think that there is a... There is a voice of a younger self uh, that, you know, was a bit more polemic, uh, had a point to prove. It was like a bomb in my pocket that I needed to get out, uh, and I really couldn't wait to make that, uh, that thing happen. Recapturing that voice would be difficult because my, my voice and my outlook are different. I know so much more about food and so much more about wine and other drinks, including beer, uh, than I did then. You know, in a certain way, I might almost overcomplicate the... I think that there's something about the way that that book was written, very purposely something that was written specifically for somebody who didn't know anything. There aren't, it seems like there almost aren't that many of those people anymore, but the book still fulfills uh, a strong purpose because I made sure that the principles laid out would, in fact, be timeless. And so, you know, the beers themselves can come and go. And so if Young's closed, then there are a lot of other people making bitters and when you look about, you know, at, at pairings for British bitters and, and certain foods, there's going to still apply. You can take even the things that are said about lambics, uh, uh, et cetera, you know, and, uh, and apply them to other beers that have an acidic component. Uh, you know, there are things that I would just love to be able to drop in a section. I mean, it, it galls me in a way that there was only one or two Berliner Weisses left and people were putting syrup in them at the time when I was writing about Berliner Weiss. Now, Berliner Weiss is like a brew pub favorite uh, in, in brew pubs across the United States. I got a chance to address some of those things in the Oxford Companion to Beer, where part of what I was doing was taking a, a worldwide view. So if I had a German writer who was writing about Berliner Weiss in a really Germanic way, I could re then rewrite the piece to flesh it out into what's going on with Berliner Weiss in Japan and in Brazil and in uh, far-flung places across the United States and beyond, which the you know the the the, the German uh, writer coming from a different background and direction might not know. So uh, I think that for me, the Oxford book really despite it not having been a thing that I sought out, they came to me, uh, you know, turned out to be just as, as powerful a thing and just in a different direction. That, I would expect there would be probably another edition. I know they're going to want one. When is going to be, you know, the question. And like Jancis Robinson's wine books, I think that what you would see would be a, uh, a great expansion of what was in it, unapologetic changes of certain things, which, you know, happens in those types of books generally. And, you know, you have to be, you know, you have to be fine with that. 
because it's the way that uh, scholarship actually evolves. Uh, you know, you do your best work, but the fact of the matter is, the very day that you file your piece, you know, three people in obscure libraries somewhere are going to scan some book that hasn't been seen for a hundred years into Google somewhere, and there will be new information, and you're just screwed. You know, there is nothing that you can you know, that you can do to get all the information at you know at once. Because you did come up for a bit of criticism um, from one particular beer writer in the UK, Martin Cornell, when the book was released, didn't you? Yeah, and frankly, I think that, one, many of the things that he said were factually not correct. And when I mean factually not correct, I mean factually not correct. Um, also, I just thought that the attitude, frankly, was execrable. Um, I, I don't, uh, it would never occur to me, you know, in a million years to go out and say that about, you know, anybody else's work. You know, he wrote us vile emails. I mean, uh, I I see no place in beer for, for any of that. I think that what happens is that people get their heads wrapped up in matters of history and believe they know things that are, in fact, impossible to know. They say that I have read X, and therefore, um, you know, this is what happened. It's like, actually, no, you did read X and you also didn't read this and you don't didn't understand these things that you read and there's a context here you'll always find somebody who says they know you know what color Christopher Columbus's shoelaces were when he arrived you know on the shores of America and they're all lying you know you have to you have to let go uh, you have to say what you do know and then let go of your ego enough to, and we had to say that a lot in the Oxford book, say, like, no one's entirely sure about this. And perhaps there will be a way in the future of, uh, of being more sure about certain things. But I think that, uh, you know, uh, to say that, you're, that here are the arguments for these different points of view and put them out there together with the scholarship you know, is, uh, you know, is the way to go. But I, I, I can't see the point of, uh, you know, and, and all the, almost all the complaints that came in, and most of them came from the UK, and interestingly, almost all of them were uh, of matters of really minute historical things. I mean, I remember one guy telling me that, you know, uh, you know, the, the UK, you know, the, the Britain was invaded, you know, by... You know, it, during you know during these particular years and not those years, and you're like, well, actually, if you read the stuff at the time, they didn't all show up at once. You know, it's not Game of Thrones, so they didn't show up at once. There was not like a flotilla that came out like a wall, you know, from the Iron Islands and uh, you know and took Britain. You read the writings of the time, and they felt they were under invasion in this century. So if you say it didn't happen until like the 5th century, they felt they were being invaded in the 4th. All right? So you weren't there and I wasn't there. So how about we get on to, you know, the thing that we're talking about here, which is beer, you know? <laughs> Bringing things up to the present day, um, what has Brooklyn got coming up at the moment um, in the way of new and exciting beers? 
Oh, we got so many, uh, you know, fun things going on. I mean, uh, there, I have new barrels coming in. I've got sherry barrels coming in. Got mezcal barrels coming in. Uh, you know, really looking forward to you know creating some new things there. We just released Kiwi's Playhouse, uh, you know, which is a, a sour beer aged on fresh kiwi fruit, and then refermented in the bottle. So that's just out now. Um, you know, and we're we're looking at such a wide variety uh, of things. A lot of fun experimentation and research uh, surrounding Brett and various strains and isolates and how best to use them to do some fun things. So we're, uh, we're really working hard at that. I think the acidity is a, is a sure thing. I'm fascinated by Brett, not just because of the flavors that it makes, but because of people's reaction to those flavors. And I'm fascinated by the fact that in certain ways, it's almost like beer people are often more prejudiced against Brett than non-beer people. People will get like an earthy, funky beer sometimes and they're complete novices and they'll be like, this is awesome. Where the beer, the person who is a beer person, if they are not already a Brett person, they are either turned off sometimes by that's not supposed to be like that. Well, if you didn't know the way it was supposed to be, you would just drink it. <laughs> uh, or, uh, you know, just having different, uh, different ideas. I'm just, I'm surprised at things that, uh, that I think are, are, are funky and way out there. Sometimes non-beer people will say, oh, well, you know, this is not, you know, I eat, I eat wash rind cheeses. I eat this and that. This is, a, you know, sure it's a little bit funky, but this is awesome. And they don't have a problem. And that's great. I mean, if there's one thing that I've learned is that the the brewer will often think that that they like something in particular. This beer is awesome, but uh, I don't think the average person is ready for it. And what that is actually is you telling yourself egotistically that you are better than they are. You have better taste than they do. This is almost never true. <laughs> But it is this kind of like little thing. It's like, oh, yeah, this is ours. And, well, you know, you couldn't handle it. Well, how the hell do you know? <laughs> you know, I can't even tell you how many how many tastings I've been to where there's some little lady or, uh, you know, there's a guy in his 70s or there's a, you know, a gaggle of women in their early 20s, you know, and... There was something in the back of my mind saying, well, I'm not sure they're going to get this really wild, funky, smoky, whatever else thing. And they'll come up to me at the end and say that was their favorite. And it really makes you, you know, uh, think to yourself like, well, who the hell do you think you were to tell her she's 78? Maybe she's been around a lot longer than you and knows more than you do. Did you ever think about that? She might have been around more of the world. You know, you're looking at a stranger and you've already made value judgments as to what they know and what they drink and what they'll like. You know, it's like you need to get over yourself. That is part of the power, I think, of, of being creative in beer is that if you free your own mind, you then give everybody the same open-minded opportunity to 
either like something or not like it, just like a, mu- a good musician will. And it's like, here's my album. And it's like, yes, I have changed since my last album, and you're either going to be with me or you're not, or you're going to start off not being with me, and you'll come to, this could come to be your favorite album after you've listened to it five or six times. You know, I, I keep seeing these things happening, and that's uh, that's a constant inspiration because people tend to think that connoisseurship has to do with knowledge. Connoisseurship does have to do with knowledge. Sophistication, however, is not knowledge. Sophistication is an open mind. You can have lots of knowledge and not be sophisticated. I know lots of people like that. Uh, you know, both in areas of drinking and food and other things. Um, and I've met plenty of people who know absolutely nothing but have a sophisticated outlook. And that is they're willing to check something out, evaluate it, and enjoy it on its merits or not. Hopefully that we will continue to cultivate more and more people who are like that. And we'll keep putting out beers that are like, you know what? We like it. You know, my mom likes it, my brother likes it, and damn the torpedoes. You know, we're, 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 we're making it. You know, because if we ever asked people, like, what they wanted, well, we all know the answer to that now, don't we? You know, they want Carling Black Label or something. You know, if you want the lowest common denominator, there's going to be something that people want every day, and there will be a perfectly good company that will provide to them that thing. That doesn't interest us. Well, we might leave it there, Garrett. Thanks so much for joining us on the program. I can, as you just found out, talk about beer for three hours straight without even breathing. <laughs> well, it's, been, it's been our pleasure. <laughs> Thanks very much. Good to see you. That was Garrett Oliver. If you enjoy Radio Bruce News and Beer is a Conversation, please rate us and leave a review on your favourite podcasting app like iTunes. We look forward to joining you next time for another conversation about beer.